Well, the Apostle Paul is in a Roman prison as he pens this letter. Chains dangle from his wrists as he writes to the Ephesians of his freedom in Christ. He's outfitted in prison stripes as he declares to them the righteousness that he wears spiritually. A string of Roman numerals are stitched across his shirt while he records the innumerable blessings that are his in Christ Jesus. You see, rather than see himself in prison, Paul chooses to see himself in Christ. And this is the choice that we make. Do we get lost and wrapped up in our physical surroundings? Or do we stay focused on our spiritual blessings? In your heart of hearts, where do you abide? Are you in pain? Are you in Christ? Are you in hock? Or are you in Christ? Are you in someone's hot seat? Or are you in Christ? Are you in fear? Or are you in Christ? Are you in distress? Or are you in Christ Jesus? Chapter 3 begins. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And notice he could have said that he was the prisoner of Rome. Or Caesar. Or the Jews. But no, he says he is a prisoner of Christ. He belongs to Jesus, and it is no accident that he is where he is. You know, a Christian is never a victim of circumstance. We need to know God is sovereign. Nothing can get to you but that it doesn't first pass through him. If you belong to Jesus, he has a plan for you. And don't interpret disappointment as a derailment of his plan. No, Paul was a prisoner of Christ. And why was Paul in prison? Well, he tells us, for you Gentiles, he had stood up for our freedom in Christ. In the face of Jewish prejudice and legalism, Paul had stood strong for pig-eating, bacon-loving, pork-chop-munching Gentiles like you and me. He had preached grace for every race. Paul knew that God isn't just for the well-bred. The blessings of Christ come apart from heredity or from heritage. Even the religious outcasts, the Gentiles, find a home in Christ. Well, Paul had spent two years in Ephesus. It's funny that in verse 2, he asks if they've heard of his ministry. He says, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Of course, the Ephesians had heard. He'd spent two years there. Perhaps Paul is really asking, did you understand the implications of God's grace? And if he were writing to us, I'm sure that Paul would ask, do we? You know, when you think of a dispensation of grace, think of a distributorship. See, the Jews knew of God's grace, so God sent Paul to distribute salvation to the Gentiles. God is an entrepreneur. He's not afraid of branching out and opening up new channels of distribution for his amazing grace. He wants us to move into all segments of the market, every age and race and language and culture, and share his grace. I guess when it comes to marketing and distribution, no one was better at it than McDonald's. Did you know that at one time a new McDonald's opened up somewhere in the world every four hours? 
Today, there are 38,000 McDonald's stores in 100 countries around the globe. And as Christians, we should be just as effective distributing the gospel as McDonald's is at distributing Big Macs. Perhaps your office has never had a strong witness for Jesus. Maybe the same could be said for your tennis team or your neighborhood or your hunting club. God has given you the distribution rights in that market. So get busy. It's been said, there's enough bread of life to supply the whole world, but are there enough volunteers to distribute it? And then Paul continues talking about his dispensation of grace. He says, how that by revelation he, that is Christ, made known to me the mystery As I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Notice Paul refers to the gospel of grace as a mystery. Now usually when we hear the word mystery, we think of an Agatha Christie or a Sherlock Holmes novel, a suspense-filled, smoking gun, whodunit kind of thriller. But that's not what Paul means when he uses this term. You see, a biblical mystery is simply a truth that is known only to God. You could call it a sacred secret. And the great mystery of the Old Testament was how would God save the Gentiles? Now there were Old Testament prophecies predicting the Gentile salvation. But it remained unclear to everyone but God as to how this would come to pass. The privilege of explaining this great mystery was finally given to Paul. And it was through Christ that God would bring together Jews and non-Jews in one group, the church. When Paul first preached the gospel of Jesus to Gentiles, he was resolving an age-old mystery. And I'm afraid one of the reasons people today take the gospel of grace for granted is we no longer view it as a mystery. Oh, when we first heard and grasped the implications of the gospel, it was an unexpected discovery. We were overwhelmed by the lavishness of God's generosity. Surprised by a love we didn't deserve. But lose the wonder and amazement and what was once an unexpected discovery soon becomes a worn out doctrine. If the gospel of God's grace has gotten boring to you, it's time to rediscover it as a mystery. Take your marriage, for example. After a few years, you and your spouse become familiar territory, don't you? Thus, to keep love fresh, to keep love alive, you have to create a little mystique, a little mystery. You need to approach each other from different angles. A husband splurges on an evening out. A wife impresses him with a new outfit. You risk dining at a new restaurant, something other than McDonald's. 
you realize there are aspects of your spouse's specialness that you've yet to discover, puzzles you've yet to figure out. Here's my point. The way to beat boredom is by reintroducing into the relationship some mystery. And the same is true in our relationship with God. I once heard it said, it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. And that's true, especially with the Bible. There's always more than we've realized. So forget the fact that you've read the Bible all your life. Pick it up afresh and look for something new. It's there. Focus on reading a passage before you as if you've never read it before. Let God surprise you. He will. Well, Paul is speaking of the gospel, verse 7. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. For Paul, sharing the gospel wasn't just a duty to be done. It was an honor that he didn't deserve. The Apostle Paul was Christianity's greatest minister. And yet notice he considered himself less than the least of the saints. Oh, before he had dispensed grace, he had received grace. And now God had called him to share its secrets. You know, for me, there's only one thing more fun than keeping a secret, and that's spilling the beans. Hey, I am the person in the family most prone to blow a secret. That's why nobody tells me anything in fear of letting me letting it slip out. But Paul had the honor of traveling the world, letting the cat out of the bag, telling the Gentiles of God's grace. And he was having a ball doing it. You and I can join the fun. And notice how he describes his ministry. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you realize you have the privilege to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ? You know, Paul refers to these blessings of Christ as unsearchable or untraceable, literally. See, it's not man who finds God. It's God who initiates and reveals himself to man. Left to our own devices, without his word, we're all in the dark. And yet God has given us the special dispensation of sharing this secret, letting others know of his amazing grace. But it was Paul's privilege to preach and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, he writes, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Paul says, I can't believe the privilege I've been given. That I can preach to the Gentiles secrets that have been unknown until now. How God through Jesus is bringing together Jew and Gentile as one people. And he says, this is even lessons to the principalities and the powers in heavenly places. Notice, God's manifold or his multifaceted wisdom is being revealed in his church. Even angels, the principalities and powers in heavenly places 
learn what God is up to in the world by looking at us, the church. How Jesus forgives and how he saves and how he blesses and unites us is even a lesson to the angels. It blows their minds to see what God is doing in us. This is why a healthy church is so vital. We are the prism through which the inhabitants of both this world and the spirit world behold God's manifold wisdom. Then he says in verse 11, According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Here's another blessing in Christ. Access to God. This is what the Old Testament saints knew nothing about. No one but the Hebrew high priest, and then only once a year, was allowed into God's presence in the Old Testament. But in Christ Jesus, we can now come boldly and approach God's throne for help. See, it's with this access Paul exhorts them. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. Paul doesn't want his imprisonment to discourage the believers in Ephesus. Instead, he's praying for them, he tells them. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And notice the first request he makes for them. That you may be strengthened with might through his Spirit, In the inner man. Notice Paul doesn't pray for the outer man, but for the inner man, for the spirit of the person. You know, when we pray for a friend, we usually focus on their external status, their physical health, or that they could make more money, or whatever it might be. And that's okay. But how quickly we need to direct our prayers toward their inner man, toward their spiritual health. See, the outer man's destined to wither and die anyway. There's no fountain of youth in this life. But the inner person is like a rechargeable battery. We can plug into God and he'll re-energize us spiritually. This is what we need and this is how we should pray. Paul prays with the right priority in mind. And then he adds that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul wants us to allow Jesus to dwell or to literally make himself at home in our hearts. Is Jesus at home in your life? Jesus is king. And wherever he moves in, he renovates. He guts out the old fixtures and he installs new amenities. Wherever Jesus dwells, he is now the king of the castle. And Paul prays that the Ephesians will give the Lord full control of their hearts and their lives. That they'll trust him enough to make the changes that he thinks are best for them. He says in verse 17, he also prays, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice this. Paul asked God to enlarge their spiritual capacity and help them grasp the full volume of God's love for them. Isn't that what you want to experience? 
the width and height and depth and breadth of the love of God. Any chocolate lovers here today? Who's not a chocolate lover? Once a guy jumped into a vat of sweet, delicious chocolate, he prayed, Lord, make my capacity equal to my opportunity. (laughs) And God's love is like a vat of chocolate. You can take in all you want. Our only limitation is our appetite. And that's why Paul prays for our hearts to expand. He wants us to be filled with the fullness of God. He closes his prayer with a praise. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Imagine God will not only meet your every need, but he'll do above all that you ask or think. His grace is always greater than our need. Never forget, God will do exceedingly abundantly. Paul begins chapter 4, and again he mentions his incarceration. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. I've heard it said, Jesus promised three things to his disciples. First, they would be ridiculously happy. Second, they would be completely fearless. And third, they would be constantly in trouble. And this was Paul. He was blessed in Christ, but he was troubled in this world. You know, I've been to the cave there in Rome that Paul occupied in the heart of the city. The Marmitine prison is a small subterraneous holding cell. And when I was there, I envisioned Paul pacing back and forth, back and forth. See, he's worried, but not about his imprisonment. It's not where he walks that concerns him. It's how we walk. For he writes to the Ephesians, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Now, in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 The emphasis has been on where we sit. We sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But now that we're somebody in Christ, we should live like it. And in chapter 4, through the end of the book, Paul's emphasis shifts to how we walk. We should walk worthy of our high calling. Membership in God's family is not only a privilege, it is also a responsibility. A pint-sized princess growing up in Buckingham Palace, little Victoria, she was sheltered from the fact that she was next in line to be England's monarch. Her handlers didn't want to spoil the future queen. But one day, Victoria, she saw the genealogical records, and she noticed that she was next in line to the throne. Initially, Victoria was overcome with emotion. But once she had gained composure, the future queen, she looked at her tutor and she said, then I must be good. And this is the reaction that Paul hopes hits us. In Christ, we also have a high calling. Hey, president, prime minister, premier, all pale in comparison to being a Christian, a child of God. 
in light of our calling, we too must be good. And the first observation that Paul makes about our high calling is that it requires a lowly walk. In verse 2, Paul says, we should walk with all lowliness, that is, with humility. Harry Truman once said, there are no limits to how much can be accomplished if no one cares who gets the credit. That's also true in the church. We should walk in humility. And also gentleness, Paul says. You know, when you look around at the people here today, imagine them with stickers stuck all over them that read, Fragile, handle with care. We need to be sensitive and tender toward one another, don't we? Let's also walk with long-suffering or with patience, bearing with one another in love. We should put up with each other's quirkiness and idiosyncrasies, for we all have them, don't we? Oh, I'm sorry, you're the only normal person here. We're all a little weird. Hey, Christian discipleship is teaching the intolerant to tolerate the intolerable. Since people get down, we need to walk lowly and help lift them up. Since they're fragile, let's be gentle. And since people take time, and they do, let's be patient. And since everyone's just a little bit weird, we need to bear with one another in love. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Realize the unity of the Spirit is a tremendous gift from God. It's a spiritual affinity that exists among all true believers. But understand what it is not. The unity of the Spirit is not the unity of faith. We won't all agree on every nuance and detail of doctrine. Neither is the unity of the Spirit the unity of format. Because we can enjoy different worship styles and different kinds of music. And it's not the unity of friendship. For we can have a spiritual unity and not be close friends with everybody. No, the unity of the Spirit doesn't negate our diversity, but it creates a bond. A commonality that's greater than our differences. We can't manufacture the unity of the Spirit. It's the work of God's Spirit among us. But once we have received it, we can endeavor to keep it. And this word endeavor means to aggressively and actively do whatever it takes to preserve our unity. See, the Spirit creates a bond of peace between us. But it can get broken if we don't protect it. Misunderstandings, hurt feelings, jealousies can threaten the unity of the Spirit. Once a visitor to an insane asylum was astonished to see three guards, just three guards, in charge of hundreds of dangerous patients. He asked one of the guards, he says, aren't you afraid that these people will overpower you and escape? The guard replied, no, lunatics never unite. See, God has created a wonderful family here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. You can sense the unity of the Spirit when you walk in the doors. But now it's up to us to walk in lowliness and gentleness and be patient and to tolerate one another. 
Differences will arise, but we can work through them if we make it our goal to stay united. And there are several other reasons why we should be concerned about our togetherness. Verse 4, there is one body. Did you know that when God looks down on Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, He sees not just us as individuals, but He sees only one body. We're one body in Christ. And there's just one Spirit. The same Spirit who dwells in you dwells in me and vice versa. Just as you are called in one hope of your calling. That means there's only one heaven. Hey, there's not a Baptist heaven and a Methodist heaven and a Presbyterian heaven and a Calvary Chapel heaven. Everybody be late getting to the Calvary Chapel heaven. (laughs) There's only one heaven, one hope of our calling. And there's one Lord. You know, we say yes, sir, to the same person. Our goal should be to please and glorify Jesus. There's only one Lord. And there's also only one faith. There's one body of truth. Hey, theology isn't arbitrary or ambiguous. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. There's only one faith as well as one baptism. When a person comes to Christ, they're baptized into the body of Christ, not into a particular church. Thus, it's arrogant and bigoted for one church not to accept another church's baptism. And finally, there's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Proving once and for all that Paul was a southerner. He said, in you all. Recall the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed not only for our orthodoxy, but for our unity. He prayed for it that night. Then Jesus paid for it the next day on the cross. The least that we can do is to endeavor to keep it intact. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God floods us with grace, and here's when, verse 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. And gave gifts to men. See, part of his grace toward us are spiritual gifts. As a conquering general, Jesus took us as his captives. But he did so to bestow on us his gifts. Verse 9, now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Here Paul gives us Jesus' itinerary between his death and resurrection, what his spirit did for those three days. He first descended into the lower parts of the earth, lower than the valleys, the earth's crust, its mantle, even its core, lower spiritually, takes you down to Hades. And Luke 16 describes this place called Hades, the place of the dead in the Old Testament. Hades, according to Jesus, was like a duplex. It was divided into two sides. There was a pleasant side and there was a torturous side, separated by a huge gulf. 
Those who died believing God's promises went to paradise, the good side. Unbelievers went to the place of torment. In the Old Testament, before Jesus died on the cross, the door to God's presence was closed. Animal sacrifices covered man's sin, but they didn't erase them. Thus, Hades served as a holding tank for heaven until Jesus, the Lamb of God, would come and offer the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, sin's permanent solution. And as soon as Jesus conquered sin, he descended to Hades to gather up all the Old Testament believers who had trusted in his salvation. They became the Savior's captives. General Jesus then led those captives into the halls of heaven. And to his followers left on earth, he gave gifts, that is, spiritual gifts, to build up his church. Thus today, when a believer dies, he no longer goes to Hades. He or she follows Jesus straight into the presence of God. As Paul said to the Corinthians, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And Jesus still gives spiritual gifts to his church, four of which are actually people with unique callings. For he himself gave some to be apostles. You know, the original 12 apostles had a -a one-of-a-kind calling, but there were other apostles mentioned. The word apostle means sent out one, a missionary who crosses cultures with the gospel or who breaks new ground and plants churches where there were none can also be called an apostle. There were also some prophets. These are people God used with special instruction at special times. Then Paul mentions some evangelists. An evangelist is a person effective at leading people to Jesus. You know, we're all called to be witnesses, but some folks are evangelists. And then some pastors and teachers. The word pastor is Latin for shepherd. And a pastor is a spiritual shepherd who nurtures and cares for God's flock. Shepherds retrieve strays and they mend bruises. And they protect sheep from wild animals. And they find suitable pasture. A shepherd's most important job is to feed the sheep. Which means a pastor must also be a gifted teacher. That's why pastors and teachers go together. And the ultimate purpose here of all four of these gifts is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. You see, a pastor's job isn't to do all the witnessing and visiting and counseling. My job is to equip you to minister to the people around you in your world. You know, in most churches, there are two categories of people. There's the laity and there's the ministers. The laity are the people who just lay around. And the ministers are those who do all the ministering. That shouldn't be. God wants every member to be a minister. You know, I grew up in a church where every week the pastor preached a sermon on salvation. The problem was that 90% of the congregation was already saved. That means he ended up speaking to the 2% while ignoring the vast majority. And as a result, no one grew. No one became bolder and stronger and more informed and more equipped to impact people for Jesus. Jesus. 
But what if that pastor had fed his flock the meat of God's word and built up their faith? Then eventually, rather than one person preaching on Sundays, he would have had hundreds of people preaching the gospel throughout the week in hundreds of different places. That would be a more effective strategy. That's our goal here at Calvary Chapel. We believe healthy sheep reproduce. Thus, we want you to grow in your faith so that you'll bring Jesus to the world in which you live. See, it's the pastor's job to equip the saints, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice how Paul phrases this. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Realize, when it comes to the unity of the faith, I'm not coming toward you and you're not coming toward me. No, we're all coming toward God. Evidently, none of us have arrived. No one has flawless doctrine or a monopoly on the truth. We're all growing. We're all leaning. We're all learning. We're all moving toward the unity of the faith. Into a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here's how you know you're growing. The goal of Christian growth is to be as fully like Jesus as we possibly can. Not just to gain knowledge but to be like Jesus. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Sadly, this describes many of today's churches. When believers aren't taught the Bible, they don't know what to believe, and so they end up vulnerable to every smooth-sounding doctrine that blows through. They're like children, tossed to and fro, fickle and not grounded. This is why we teach the Bible the way we do, verse by verse and chapter by chapter in a systematic way so that you can truly learn what this book says. In contrast to teaching that's described as trickery and cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting, Paul tells us in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And when a person teaches God's truth in God's love, believers grow. They become more like Jesus and the church gets stronger. Paul mentions Christ who is the head of the church. He says, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What is Jesus up to in the world today? He's a bodybuilder. That's right. Jesus is building up his body, one believer at a time, See, we all have a place in that body, and everyone's growth is crucial. Verse 17 continues with this theme of how to walk worthy by contrasting how we shouldn't walk. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Several years ago, it was Skidmore College that did research that showed how our walk reflects our personality. Did you know that a waddle means that you're independent? A drag, you drag your feet, it shows you're frustrated. 
A stride indicates confidence. Tiptoes is a sign of insecurity. A shuffle, man, you're lazy. You can tell a lot about a person's gait. And Paul would agree. Unbelievers and Christians have a distinctive way they carry themselves in this world. And Paul describes here how the pagans walk, verse 17. He says, first, in the futility of their minds. In other words, they're empty-headed. Have you ever been talking to a friend, they told you what happened, you said, what were you thinking? Paul says that's how the Gentiles behave. They don't think through the consequences of their actions. And it's because having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Without Christ, they've been cut off from God's light and truth. They live in darkness, spiritual darkness. And how do people get cut off from God? He says, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. See, they don't have to become ignorant. They're born ignorant of God and of His truth. It's only when we're born again that the light comes on. Paul continues to speak of the person separated from God. He says, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. See, when you consistently resist God, you deaden your conscience and you grow numb to the truth and to morality. And as a result, you'll try anything to fill that emptiness. And so much of it is harmful to you. C.S. Lewis once described the world without Christ as a land where it's winter all year long, but never Christmas. Today's world is a dark and lonely place. But in contrast, verse 20 tells us that we need to dress for success. Spiritual success, that is. He says, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, if you're running a race, you dress in lightweight clothes and sturdy shoes. You dress appropriately. And likewise, if you're running a spiritual race, it's also necessary that you wear the appropriate attire. You put off and you put on. Paul says, strip off any selfish attitudes. Ditch your sinful behavior. Stop rehearsing old thoughts. Put off the junk that characterized your life before you came to Jesus and put on a new attitude. Remind yourself of God's thoughts. Renew your mind. Harmonize your thoughts with God's word. Learn to see yourself and all of life from God's perspective. You see, we should put off and we should put on. And here's what this looks like. The next few verses list examples of the changes that you'll make if you walk appropriately. He says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Christians should be truth tellers. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now, it's not always wrong to be angry. There's a lot of evil in this world that riles my anger. Just don't let anger lead you to sin. 
I read recently where the average person drives 20 miles per hour faster when he or she is angry. That's anger that can lead you to sin. Anger is a powerful force. You need to get control of it before it takes control of you. And one way to control your anger is to do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That means keep short accounts with the people you love. If you have a conflict with a friend or with your spouse, deal with it today. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today before the sun goes down as quickly as possible, he says. For verse 27, nor give place to the devil. In other words, don't give the devil an opportunity to tempt you. Often I hear people say, oh, I got a terrible problem with pornography. Every time I log on to the internet, I stumble. So don't log on to the internet. Oh my, I struggle with alcohol, man. Every time I enter a bar, I end up getting drunk. Come on, man. If you're serious about walking with God, stop walking headfirst into temptation. Don't just stumble into the devil's snare and give him an opportunity. He says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. And here is the wonderful effect that Jesus has on a person. He doesn't just stop him from stealing, but he encourages him to be generous so that he might give to those who have need. See, Jesus doesn't just eliminate sin, but he installs love. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. You know, whenever I speak in another area of the country, I, somebody will usually come up and they'll identify me as a southerner. I really don't know why. Maybe it's something I wear. Or I don't know. But no, they tell me I have an accent. And likewise, as a Christian, we should be identified by what comes out of our mouth. Not just that we refrain from gossip or from profanity, but hey, that grace colors all of our speech. Do your words build up or do they tear down? And then he says in verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You don't want to grieve God. You don't want to grieve his spirit. You see, quenching the spirit is to avoid doing what the Holy Spirit prompts you to do. Whereas grieving the spirit is the opposite. It's doing what God has told you not to do. Don't grieve him. And then chapter 4 closes. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. With all malice. And pay attention. Some of you need to wake up now. Pay attention. And be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. And you know, there would be no problem with this passage if the verse ended there. Oh, we should forgive. Everybody would agree with that. But look at Paul's qualifier. Just as God in Christ forgave you. Oh my. That ups the ante, doesn't it? 
We should forgive one another as fully and as freely as Jesus has forgiven us. Once there were two husbands, they were talking. One says to his buddy, he says, man, he says, when my wife is mad, she gets historical. His friend corrects him. He says, no, you mean hysterical. He says, no, I mean historical. She dredges up the past. Hey, Jesus forgives and forgets. He puts it behind him. He holds no grudges. Let us forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us. And if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, I hope you understand how easy it is. All you have to do is ask. He is willing. And so, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for our time in your word, how rich it's been. And, Lord, I pray now that as we as we immediately respond to it, Lord, that, that we would receive in, that we would leave this morning with a commitment to live out what we've heard, to let your word have its way in our hearts. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who can't possibly forgive others because they've never been forgiven themselves, oh, they're weighed down this morning with a load of guilt, and how they would long to be free. Lord, I pray that this morning they would realize just how simple it is that Jesus has already done the work. He has paid the price. He's ready and willing to forgive them of all they've ever done if they'll just ask. I pray that they won't leave this room this morning without asking. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. And we pray you be glorified in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.